here we go. This is Writing Excuses, Season 4, Episode 34, Q&A at Dragons and Fairy Tales. Fifteen minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. And this is our last podcast of the season. Woohoo! Which we decided arbitrarily. <laughs> Tune in next week for the first podcast of next season. <laughs> next season. <laughs> Um, and we're going to do Q&A, so we have some wonderful people who are going to ask questions at us, and hopefully we can answer them. So, first question. All right, how do you gentlemen, um, when, when you were early writers, how did you manage your time with trying to do school and writing and all that kind of oh, stuff? Oh, fantastic question. I'm going to give it to Dan first. All right. My uh, answer is called insomnia. <laughs> people who sleep at night, I don't know how you people get anything done. Um, I basically wrote uh, six novels between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. over the course of several years because that was the only time I had. But since I never sleep anyway, it worked out really well for me. You kids and your TV and your video games and your other sorts of activities. Yes. I started writing before there was pastime. <laughs> I actually, I, I actually just you know gave up a lot of that. I was putting in a 60-hour work week at Novell and uh, another 20 or 30 hours working on the comic. And there's no time for <laughs> television. Um, I found for a lot of writers, um, what they suggest is you really need to actually make a goal and you need to set time aside and say this is the writing time. Yeah. And you'd be surprised at what you can do even with doing that twice a week. If you can give yourself three hours twice a week, um, you'll have a novel in a year. Um, if you're you know, depending on the length of the novel and so if you can do something like that or if you can just give yourself four hours on a Saturday every Saturday four hours and you just have to make that the time and you maybe go somewhere what you know go to the library get away that you are actually going to do your writing space yep. um, and that's that's the best advice I can give I actually probably shouldn't give advice on this because I did this while I was um, I was working a graveyard shift at a hotel and um, I just wrote at work. And I was single, and um, a lot of the time I was out of school, and it was just pretty easy um, to yeah. manage. So Now, here I, I did a blog post on this a few weeks ago, and I am totally fine with recycling my blog posts here. Mm. Um, Writing excuses, all new content, all the time. <laughs> I know none of you read my blog anyway. Um, even though, as we learned last time, it will save the world one day. Um, when, when you don't have time for something that is not an issue of scheduling, it is an issue of values. It yeah. is because you have chosen that you value something else more. Um, and oftentimes, that's a, legit, a legitimate choice. Work and school and having enough food to eat is probably more important than writing. But things you can give up, like TV and video games and whatever else you do with your time, if you value writing more, you have to give some of those things up. All right, question number two. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh producer Jordo has declared. Okay. okay. What is, I guess you could say, what is the process that you should go through trying to get published for the first time? Okay. Um, basics of process you should go through to get published the first time. Uh, we get this question a lot, um, but it's a good one to keep repeating answers to because new writers need to hear it. Mm -hmm. um, Dan, do you want to handle this one? Okay, step one, write. All the time. Write a book, write many books, just keep writing, always, always be writing. Uh, step two, always be submitting. Um, as soon as you finish a book, Find an editor you think would be good for it, an agent that you think would be good for it, and send it off, and then start writing something new. Right. And don't treat rejections as non-validation. 
Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's just the beginning, though. Research. Research the publishers. Research yeah. the editors who work at those publishers. See if you can find it, their blogs, if they have them, to get a feel for their personalities. Um, know the business. You wouldn't go become a doctor without actually knowing the, you know, the different medical practices that were happening, the different hospitals that were producing them, the doctors who were doing these new processes and discovering them and these sorts of things. Likewise, in publishing, people tend to just wander into publishing not paying attention to what publishers publish what, what editors work for those publishing houses, what specific names of specific agents work for specific agencies. They just kind of wander in and assume just sending those. They, they, yeah, do that. And then the last um, step would be network. Uh, try and go to some of the conventions and conferences where you can meet some of these people and talk to them in person. Yeah. That's Re the short version. Really good books get rejected all the time because they've been submitted to the wrong person. And so yep. that's why you need to do your research and find the right person, and you need to just keep submitting over and over and over and over well, again. Really good doctors don't go into practice because they're still using leeches. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, I love those guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, third question. When you have a team in your story, what kind of things can you do to show like different dynamics within the team and cohesiveness and problems that they may have? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Me. Positioning positioning the heads in different locations <laughs> in the panels is, is I it's, I've been drawing it all week. I've been uh, I've been doing a uh, doing a team scene where there's there you know different people are doing different things and I need to show these roles and positioning the heads in different places in the panel and shifting that is uh, far more important than anybody else thinks. <laughs> this um, is drawing excuses. I'm okay. First step I would say is uh, make sure you keep all the members of the team distinctive. Yeah. All right? Um, and to do this, I would try to give them as many of each of these as you can, a distinctive visual cue. So when you describe them, this character always, you know, this is something distinctive about them that's a tag. A distinctive dialect cue, um, dialogue cue. The way they, the things they talk about, the way they talk is distinctive to them. Um, give them distinctive motivations. Everyone on the team wants the same general goal, but then each of them should want a few different things that the others don't want. Um, or maybe opposed to what the other ones want. Um, and each of them have a distinctive role and job. They've got to be, you know, someone's, and so the main purpose here is to keep them distinct in the reader's mind. And then from there, you can have wonderful complex dynamics. But if people are forgetting, you know, which, of, which one is which, and that, that's a lot more bigger of a problem. A lot more bigger. A lot more uh, bigger. A lot more bigger. That's a much larger problem than new writers seem to expect because you know them all intrinsically because you've been working with these characters for years and years or months and you know you have them all diagrammed in your head but you haven't conveyed that yet to the reader so they're not going to remember. Um, Orson Scott Card says give them all a very different name also to keep them yes. keep them distinctive. Um, and I will I will second all of that. I think it's great. Um, and this is something that new writers are often reticent to do because it feels like you're stereotyping them. Mm -hmm. because you're making one of them the old guy and one of them the woman and one of them the black guy and you don't want them to be pigeonholed like that. 
you don't, but you still need those cues so that the reader can very, very quickly tell who they are right. and then get into the depth. Yeah, the, right. other thing to, the other thing to keep in mind is that anytime you're writing a scene with all these <clears> people in it, the scene needs to be like any other scene in that it has to fulfill several functions at once. And one of those functions is defining these characters. Another function is moving the plot forward. Another function is you know, de defining some of these subplots. And if you put defining the team members as one of the goals, and then you have them you know, helping drive forward the conflict, the action, whatever, uh, that'll probably help you keep them in line. OK, we're going to pause for a, uh, a, an advertisement right now. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by a world of broken rock in which a man stands on a shattered plane wearing powered plate armor and an awesome sword. That's right, The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson, which is not half so corny as I made it sound. I totally loved this book, and you will too. It's available in stores tomorrow, August 31st. Go buy it. And back we come. Question number four. Um, if you have characters who, after they die, they respawn a few minutes later, how do you keep readers from getting dull to just these characters okay. responding? I'm going to expand that question to <laughs> how, when you have characters that death is not a problem for them, which mm -hmm. you may have if you're having characters who are ghosts, which I've read mm -hmm. books about, or if you're having a character such as, you know, someone like Superman that's like, you know, dying, this character's not going to die. How do you keep, how do you make tension? How do you make um, make the the scene work, Howard? I, you know what? I remember a scene in uh, was it the the sixth day, uh, where you know these guys can be cloned over and over and over again, and the guy has just uh, been grievously injured, and he looks down. He knows he can be cloned. They're going to fix it. He looks down and he's incredibly frustrated that one of his boots is now gone. Um, these characters may have other things that are important to them. Uh, maybe when they respawn, they've lost some memories. Mm -hmm. Maybe when they respawn, um, you know, it costs something. Okay, there's a. I mean, that's a yeah. good. That's a good uh, answer. Is think about your magic system and maybe add a cost on top of it. Um, but a larger answer to the question, question is, what do you do with characters that that powerful? And that's something that writers struggle with because if you're if you take away some of these things, then. Um, and what they struggle with, you're going to have to come up with problems for these characters that do not rely upon them s yeah. surviving. Yes. For instance, you know, you could have um, the end of, uh, you know, the, the, they're going to be destitute. Becoming destitute could be a terrible thing. It doesn't matter if you, how many times you respond, you know, it, or someone's going to lose their class in society, or you know, the, um, the wrong political party is going to come in charge and dominate everyone and, and enslave everybody. And being immortal and a slave stinks. Um, you know, being a slave stinks anyway. But these sorts of things, you're going to have to have problems and things that can go wrong that do not relate to that. You know, us dying is one of our major concerns. Uh, you'll have to find a different concern for people. Oh, sure. Now I'm immortal but I'm food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you you can make your characters as powerful as you want. Like literally as powerful as you want as long as the obstacles they have to deal with are not in their area of power. Yeah. Um, all right, question Hit number. The, nice work. Yeah, wow. Why didn't we just put, you're going to answer that all yeah, of them. Yeah, well. You go okay. first. Yeah. You go first this time. Because I am this smart. <laughs> <laughs> it's this voice that makes me so much more intelligent. All right, don't laugh, but how, do you have any advice for making the transition from fan fiction to original fiction? As someone who has never written fan fiction, I, 
I don't know how to answer that question for you. <laughs> no, in a previous podcast, Dan admitted that his first work was fan fiction. Was long, that? long ages. Rift fan fiction. fiction. Uh, this yes. is an excellent question. Um, I will say to mm. you that um, I have found numerous editors in um, New York that you know they grew up as part of the fan community, and there is not the bias against fan fiction among them that some people think that there will be. Um, I've heard several editors say, yeah, fan fiction is a great place to cut your teeth, um, to practice your writing, um, and they have no problem with it. So how do you make the transition? That's a tough question. The, the transition, I think the key you need to remember when moving into your own work is that you are working with your own characters. So the characters, you're, you, you're accustomed in fan fiction to dealing with characters that already have problems and already have personalities. And so the big jump, I think, is that now you have to create those and you have to fill in all of those holes. But the good news is, if you've been writing fan fiction, you should be very good at dealing with those kinds of issues. And so you can draw on that experience and say, well, you know, this character always had these kind of problems and I dealt with them this way. That suggests then that I could create this all new character and do it this way. And there is nothing wrong with taking an established character and using that as your template to start with and then building your own character out of it. Yeah. And if you're um, worried that it's going to be too recognizable, yeah. you say, well, you know what? I'm going to take all of, I'm going to take all of Worf's strengths and right. I'm going to take all of Deanna Troy's weaknesses <laughs> and build oh. something completely new. There's our writing problem. No, wait, we've got these guys. <laughs> they're going to they're give it back. No, um, an example of this that I, I really want to bring out is um, I believe Joss Whedon said that when he was writing Firefly, he said, I just wanted to write a story where Han Solo was the hero. Um, where it was a story about him. And he took Han Solo and built Mal out of him. And yep. you can do that as a, as, a, as a writer. Writers do it all the time. Just make sure you're making them distinctive um, and changing things enough that they become your own. All right. Oh, wait. Okay. Waiting. Go. Waiting. Okay. Uh, Brandon, you are very responsive to readers' questions. <gasps> Which leads me to this question. Is that really you responding? And second, <laughs> how important as authors is it to stay sort of involved with your readers and your fan base? Where is the line on okay. that? Thanks. Um, to answer the one directed per, um, directly at me, it is usually me. Um, it is occasionally um, one of my people posting comments by me that I have written in other places to respond to the exact same question and transposing them over. You, it you, is always my writing, but it may not be me posting it sometimes. You can tell he's successful when he refers to one of his people. <laughs> um, if, it's, if it's on Twitter or Facebook, 99% of the time it's me. Once in a while, when I'm not there watching, one of, one, one of my people um, <laughs> will post thing, comments I've made before. Well, and once in a while, when you know Dan has walked away from his iPad, somebody yeah. will <laughs> post as him. Yeah, that's um, true. People who love sheep always seem to do that. <laughs> How um, important. I'm going to give this one to Howard, because Howard survives based kind of on his interaction with readers. The... <sighs> First of all, uh, my wife answers a lot of my email, and when we first set that up, what she would do is forward everything to me, I would answer it, forward it back to her, and so she had what Brandon has just described, she would have a stock of answers that I had already written once uh, so that she could pass them, pass them along. Uh, but more importantly, the webcomics uh, genre is, is all about community, and 
uh, managing an online community was a large part of my job for the first uh, eight years that I was doing the comic. Less so now, but uh, it was. I learned early on that it was very important to be nice and very <laughs> important to not say anything that was going to embarrass you later. And I think those are rules that uh, we we can all adhere to in our online interactions. Yeah. Um, I would say this is becoming more and more important, um, partially because writing, um, I'd said it before, fiction is becoming a niche entertainment industry. Uh, more and more as mass media, um, be kind of be television and um, video games and movies are really our mass entertainment mediums, and fewer and fewer people read. Now the population is increasing, so actually the number of people reading goes up, but the percentage goes down. But that means it's becoming a niche audience where we are supported directly by our readers. Um, and so I feel it's more and more important. The thing is, you don't need to do it. Um, you still don't have to absolutely do this. In fact, you'll talk to publishers, and they will decide if they want to tour you and if that should be uh, um, part of your expenditure of time. There is an argument to be made. You know, the amount of time I spend doing this is enough time that I could probably just take and have written another book, um, a short one, but a, a novel. So, is this worth to me the amount of um, of money that I would generate or more acclaim or whatever from having just another book to do? Some authors say no, and then don't do this and write the other book. Um, I say I would rather have um, more attention brought on the books that I bring out as opposed to just writing another one. So it's just it's a balance. Well, and answering email and interacting mm -hmm. with people is very fulfilling. Mm -hmm. When sometimes when we write things, it's almost like we've we've thrown them out into into a vacuum and there the response there there's no feedback loop yeah. on yeah. it. Whereas with with email with with fan interaction, reader interaction, there is a tight feedback loop and that's nice. Yeah, we're we're recording this live. There's like a whole ton of you here in this room. I can look out and recognize many of you from previous things and I know you've come to my signings or you've seen me speak at another conference that makes this way more fun for me frankly that's part of why I do this um, I do want to do one more question because sure. there's someone I called up that didn't get to <clears throat> was there wasn't there a third person yeah, yeah right here and those so all right go ahead what do you do when you're going along and writing and suddenly your cast of characters is larger than you can handle um, that's when the killer comes. <laughs> the, no, that's yeah. a really good answer. That's, <laughs> and the way, and you know what, the killer, the killer may be, the, the killer may be your editor saying, you know, these, these darlings just need to die. Um, so, and they get hit by bale fire. They never existed. They are written out of the book. You may have to do that. Um, try not to let it get to that situation. Um, a fix that if it's too hard for you to to deal with killing them, group them together. Have them start interacting with one of their storylines and pick a prime viewpoint for that storyline and let the others be additions to that yeah. storyline so they don't have to get killed or things, but they're there and being mentioned. But you don't have to, you know, or you could become George R. R. Martin and manage to juggle them all somehow. I don't know how he Group them all yeah. together, put them all on the same shuttle, and then crash it. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, though, killing one or more of them off like actually in your book is a great idea because Howard you obviously don't yep. need that many characters 
and it will help raise the tension okay. for all the rest of them. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I think, didn't you once come to me, Howard, and say, man, my cast is too big, and a lot of them are too alien. It's hard to draw. <laughs> yes. It's time for some of them to retire. It's time for some of them to retire, and that's exactly what they did. And it became a plot point. I hung a lantern on it and moved on, and it was fun. All right, we're going to go ahead and let, uh, let Red Shirt Lady uh, ask her question, and then we'll be done. Hi, now, Red For those shirt of you lady. not benefiting from the video, she has a red shirt. See, that's implied. <laughs> that that was a show instead of a tell. I know. <laughs> that's why my joke was funny. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. If that you joke have was to funny? explain Listen it, to it is not funny. Okay, quick, Donna, save us. Thank you. Okay, I have a question about creativity. I know you're outlining. I've I've listened to the show and I've heard a lot of what you do. What was the biggest stumbling block for your creativity, and how did you overcome that? <sighs> Just being way too creative. <laughs> Biggest stumbling block to creativity. Ah, boy. Um, I find that when I am not in in good physical condition, I am less creative. Okay. I, I am more creative when I've been going to the gym and when I've been eating right. When I haven't been going to the gym and living off of have been living off of toast and chocolate milk, the brain just kind of shuts down. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine with um, a lot of authors I know. Um, it seems like once people start writing a lot, they stop reading. Um, and you, you'll hear this from authors. Who do you read? Well, I don't really read fantasy, or I don't really... I find that if I am not consistently reading what other excellent people are doing in my field, and, you know, reading widely. I suggest read widely in nonfiction stuff, but if I'm not watching what the really good writers are doing in fantasy, my creativity, I feel, goes down. Yeah. Um, and I see this in authors that I respect who go on for a long time and stop reading what anyone else is doing and just kind of become insulated and do their own thing, and I think their creativity suffers for it. I agree. <laughs> All right, we have a, the A-Team, um, a, a trio of uh, wonderful people that I've known for quite a long time, are going to give us our writing prompt. Go for it, Austin. Okay. You walk out of a bookstore to a torrential rain, and Howard attacks you with the power of thunder. Uh, oh! <laughs> and lightning? <laughs> Little did we have to expand on that. Thunder is his pet, pet cat. <laughs> I get a kitty. <laughs> oh. uh, this has Thank been writing you. excuses, and we went way too long. You're out of excuses. Go write. Thank you for another wonderful season. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? 
So join me in supporting Locus. 